<clears throat> a week from tomorrow, uh, I will be making a trip. Want everyone to know that. For those, uh, I think everyone who has been here for some time know our connection with our with the work in the Fiji Islands. Uh, we worked there from '92 until 2006, and then Julie and I have been making trips back almost every year. Um, last year, we made a trip back there, and here's Laura, who's visiting us, uh, Brown's daughter, and Brett. They were we met them in Fiji. It was one of those weird things. <laughs> to be in the other side of the world and uh, have dinner together and be able to visit uh, over there. Um, my co-worker, one of our co-workers, uh, Samu Rakai, has he and his family migrated to New Zealand. They're in the Auckland area, the Morningside Church, and I'll be doing a two-weekend seminar there and then going through Fiji, uh, just spending really just a few days there, and then we'll be back. I will be back. Julie will be staying here and uh, taking care of this side of the world while I take care of the other side of the world. And uh, but um, the staff and I have been talking about a special treat that we're planning for you. We'll let you know more about that probably next week. Uh, I am I'm thankful for the men that I work with, the women and men I work with. Uh, you can probably tell I have a little bit of a cold or something. And uh, I called, or actually didn't call, I text Jim Norville and just said, bring a sermon. <laughs> and uh, he said, no problem. And so uh, I'm, I'm thankful I can just be able to call on any of these guys anytime and just say, you know, uh, I need your help. And they're, they're there to work together. So uh, if I collapse, we'll just turn over to Jim. But First uh, John chapter 3, if you were here on Wednesday night. You heard Mike Lowry, and you also heard Rondell Crinton, but Mike Lowry uh, spoke, took the first half hour, and afterwards I told him, I said, Mike, if I had taken my notes and given them to you, you could not have said anything different than what's already in my notes. He introduced my lesson without going to First John. It was amazing. I listened to him, and I turned to Julie and said, I'm going to say that Sunday. Uh, three or four times, I, I, I just, I'm going to say that Sunday. <laughs> and uh, and it's amazing that it's uh, almost, I mean, just about as close as you can get to the exact same words. I had already written down in my, my introduction here to introduce these words. And so thank you, Mike, for that wonderful introduction of today's lesson. It was, it's uh, amazing how God works there. Uh, but one of the things he said, he talked about trying and failing. Do you ever get tired of trying and failing over and over? And I'm not talking about physical things. I'm talking about spiritually speaking. Perhaps wishing that there, you could, if you could ever get to the point where you could rise above that struggle of sin. You see some improvements sometimes. You see areas that you grow in. Uh, often you don't see it for a while and then suddenly there's this growth spurt. You, you know what I'm talking about that? You, you see a, a child and then the next time you see them, they seem to be a head taller and you, they just have this growth spurt. And you, that happens spiritually sometimes. You just have this growth spurt uh, and you think you've made some progress in, in your spiritual life. You think there's a noticeable victory, but then the victories are few and far between. 
You look at your life, it seems there's more losses than wins. And as you age, you think, you know, when I, I imagined when I reached the age of 50, that I would be farther along than I am. Perhaps for many of us, there's been significant growth. But there's one area of Christian growth that's, in an ironic way, causes a sense of failure and disappointment. And that's the growth of knowing who Jesus is. And you, stay with me for a second here. As we grow and get to know Christ more, we, we begin to see the difference between him and us in a greater way. Uh, when I talk about this failure and this struggle, a lot of young Christians won't be able to relate to this. I remember when I was a very young Christian and I'd hear people talking about struggling and growing in the Lord. It, it just it, it, you, you lost me. I'll admit there was one time I remember exactly where I was, actually walking down a, 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 a what do you call them here in sidewalks here in America? I was going to say a footpath a sidewalk. And I thought, I can't think of a single thing I would change in my life. I was young and foolish. But think, but I had made, I had had one of those growth spurts, spiritually speaking, and things were going really well. I had conquered some things I thought I'd I had changed my attitude in certain ways. And I was at a point I thought I've arrived. But then as I grew and I matured a little more and I saw the difference between me and Christ, I saw how young and foolish I, I was at that time. I become more aware of my weaknesses and my imperfections as I look at his perfection. And so we perceive as we grow in the Lord, the less we are like Jesus and how far short of the glory of God we really are. And I think this can be a source of discouragement. We see who Jesus is and who we are, and we struggle with that. And I think the problem is we are we at that point, we become more me focused than Christ focused. We're looking at our disappointments and our failures instead of who Christ is. And so John, in this passage, is going to show us, give us some hope. He's going to give us some encouragement in the midst of our weaknesses and our human frailty. We just saw in chapter three, verse one last week, the absolute fact of who we are. And John's going to reinforce that in this next verse. The fact of, of who you are, you are, you are God's child. And he's speaking to a people who have come to faith, who have trusted in the promises of God, who in repentance have turned to God, turned away from their sins, submitted themselves to a grave of water so that their sins would be washed away. Buried that old man, risen to walk in new life. Risen to walk as his child. Now I'm God's child. And this is a fact, John says. It's an otherworldly kind of love. What great love the Father has lavished on us. That he should actually make us his children. And so now we're going to look at the promise of God that's related to that. And we're going to look at our labor of love that's attached to this fact. The promise of God. Chapter 3, verse 2. 
He says here, dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not been has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. He starts out here by saying, dear friends, and that's a poor translation, at least in my opinion, a poor translation of a rich word. And you've heard, as I've said before, many Christians, the only Greek word they know is agape. All right. And it's related to this word. It's agape, which is just a plural form of the word. And we saw this previously in chapter two, verse seven, this term. And this term is all throughout John, just like the term little children is all throughout John. Six times this word is sprinkled throughout the letter. And each time we get there, we're going to stop for a second and think, now, why is he saying that? He's reminding us who we are. A better translation would be beloved. But just like the word behold that we looked at last week, it's kind of an old fashioned word. And that's why I think the NIV and other translations, they'll try and use a different word because beloved is archaic, old fashioned. Behold is archaic and old fashioned. And so instead of saying beloved, they say dear, dear friends. But what he is saying, he says, you are beloved by who? By God. He's not saying John's not saying I love you as much as he's saying God loves you. You are loved by God. And we, we, we uh, anchored in on that last week where the God of eternity, who's enthroned and surrounded by seraphim, who are calling out holy, 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 who created the worlds, the galaxies, looks at you and he says, loved ones. And we really just can't grasp that. That just kind of gets into the surface of our mind, I believe, that this, you know, when I look at the, I, I like astronomy and I wish I had more time to study it. And certain people like Mike Guthrie and David Nance, who know more than I'll ever know, you know, they share a little bit about the galaxies. And you see some of these beautiful pictures that the Hubble telescope took and you think, wow. And, and I, I couldn't I couldn't tell you how big those things are. Hundred thousand light years across some of these galaxies and bigger. And the God that spoke and that happened, you would think he would not have time for you. But he looks at you and he says, loved, loved by God. I found a, a wonderful passage. You know, have you ever read the Bible and you find these wonderful gems? Isaiah chapter 56. There it is. Verse three and five. Let no foreigner. You know what the Bible says about being a foreigner? He says, you are no longer a foreigner. Those of you who are Christians. He says, let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord. That's me. I was a foreigner, a stranger. I was separated from God. And he says, let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. You ever feel that way? God will exclude you. He said, don't don't say that. The Lord will surely exclude you from. He's not going to say that to them. I will give within my temple. And this is symbolic of the, uh, God's holy place now, which is not this building, obviously, but our lives. I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial 
and a name better than sons and daughters. Yes, he calls you sons and daughters, but there's a name he's going to give you. I'm not sure what it is. I, it might be friend. It might be friend because Jesus at one time says, you're my friends. He says, I'm going to give you a name that's better than sons and daughters. What could be better than a son or a daughter of God? God says, I'm going to give you a name better than that. Use your imagination. It's amazing. Loved of God. And then he says, now, there's one little word, now. And this is where the promise of God is introduced. God is a God who keeps promises. Have you ever, have you ever been given a promise and someone, I promise I'll do this? I know as a little kid, that would happen a lot. I promise, and then it wouldn't happen. And well, my fingers were crossed. Uh, okay, let me see your hands. You know, they, they promise and they show your hands, but their feet are crossed. Had a friend that to- crossed her toes. You know, you can, never, you can never believe a promise that was given to you because her toes were crossed. And you couldn't see it because she had shoes on. But God is not that way. He's a, pro- he's a God who keeps promises. Hebrews 10, verse 23. He says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. That basically says, if God said he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Whatever he promises. And there's a wonderful passage in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. He says, so no matter, for no matter how many promises God has made, no matter how many he's made, they are yes in Christ. They're yes. God does not fluctuate back and forth. You, you can't ever hear what God says and say, well, I'm not sure if that's going to happen or not. They're always yes in Christ. He bases this promise by reminding us of who we are again. Notice this. In the second verse, he says, dear friend, now we are children of God. Didn't he just say that? Didn't he just say that in verse one? We're children of God. And now he says, now he says, now we are children of God. Why does he tell us again? The exact same reason that Caleb came up here and said, we often what? Forget. We're forgetful people. We can't even remember from verse 1 to verse 2. In a minute, we're going to forget something when we get to verse 3. But we forget so easily. So God said, so John reminds us again, we are children of God. The promise isn't based on how well you're doing. Get this. God has made a promise to you, and that's not based on how well you're doing. And some of us aren't doing so well. Some of us are struggling in our sins. Some of us are struggling with our attitudes. And if the promise was based and determined on how well we're doing, then none of us would measure up. The best of us wouldn't. It's so very easy to look at someone who's struggling with a big sin and say, you know, they shouldn't do that. Well, you should have a better attitude. (laughs) Really? You know, we do there and we, we're, it's easy for us to look at someone who's fallen in a major way and point our finger at them and say, they should not do that. Well, that's true. They should not. But you need to watch your own attitude. Be careful, the Bible says, unless you'll, you'll be tempted and fall too. The question we have to ask ourselves is not how well we, we are doing, but who are we? Do you know and do you remember that you're God's child? That's what John is saying. Before he gets into the promise, he says, you are God's child. Again, he focuses uh, again into God. We're God focused. And as the child of God, we're aware of this new life in us. 
We are acutely aware of our sins. Have you noticed as you grow in Christ how more aware of your sins you are than when you were younger? Someone pointed this out to me years ago. They, they did a study of the writings of Paul. And they went from his early writings to his late writings. And they said, you know, if you notice this, he becomes more and more aware the older he grows of how weak he is and how much he depends on Christ. And you think the apostle Paul would get better and better, stronger and stronger. But the more he grew, the more he saw the difference between him and Christ. And he saw how weak and sinful he was and how much he needed him. In fact, the great evidence that you are a child of God is that sin bothers you. If sin bothers you, if sin disturbs you, and I'm not talking about the sins of the world out there, even though that's true, but your own personal struggles, the more that bothers you, the more that is an evidence that you're God's child. Think about it. If sin doesn't bother you, I question whether you're a child of God because you're doing what Satan wants you to do. And so if sin doesn't bother you, you're doing what your father wants you to do. But if you're not doing what your father wants you to do and you're struggling in sin and you're just fretting over it and your work, you're just it bothers you. You can be assured you're probably a child of God. I think you are. The longer that you live in the Lord, the more aware you are of the difference between you and him. The gulf between his righteousness and your performance bothers you, hurts you. The desire to do right, to know God better, to defeat sin in your life, to love your spiritual family. Do some of you struggle loving people in this room? Do you struggle with that? Come on, admit it. Some of you, all of you, a lot of you just got this blank face like, mm. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? You look, you look at some people and you say, I just, I have a hard time loving that person. Am I God's child? Well, the evidence that you're having a hard time is probably evidence that you are God's child because you know you should and you know you're not doing what God wants you to do. Later on, John's really going to get into this. He's going to talk about loving one another and how we do that. But as evidence, you, you are his child. And then he says this in this promise, not yet. We are now children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. Here's the good news. The promise. There's something better in the future. And the Bible isn't really clear anywhere in the Bible. The Bible is really not clear of what will happen when Christ returns. You know, we can have all sorts of opinions and theories and Bible studies on the second coming of Christ. And here it's not made any clearer. He says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him for we'll see him as he is. That's all it says. And we can go to first Thessalonians and go to first Corinthians and Kind of put them together and try and get a picture of, of what, what will happen. But it's so totally different that John uses the word what we shall be, not who we shall be, but what we shall be. It's, it's like a what in the world. If we were able to look ahead and see what we will be, it would be a what in the world experience. What, what is that? And so John says, we don't know what we shall be, but we do know that the very thing we long for, that is what we will be. It says here, we will be like him. What's he like? What's he like right now? I don't know. 
John saw a vision in the book of Revelation. And John, who's, who spent years with Jesus, turned around. And when he saw this glorified Jesus in the, in the vision, he said he, he just fell down. He fell down as if he was dead. We don't know what it's going to be, but we will be like him. And the emphasis in the in the language here is like him. We shall be like him. Paul speaks of this change in first Corinthians. He says, you're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. I like that. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. And, and when he tells us this mystery, I have more questions than answers from him. We will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I've seen that in nurseries, you know, child care. I have. I've seen that. Yeah, I know. We shall not all. And it's, it's appropriate. We shall not all sleep, but we all be changed. But OK, now get out of the nursery here. Let's come back here. I think that's taking a passage out of context, but. We will not all be we will not all sleep. Now you can't even think, can you? But we will all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of the eye at the last trumpet. If you go to First Corinthians 15, you read that. I mean, I have more questions than answers. It's a mystery, but something's going to happen. There's going to be some kind of change in us. It's going to happen immediately. And when we try and figure it out, here's the interesting thing. He says, you're foolish to even try and figure this out. Uh, verse 36, he says, how foolish what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body and he tries to explain this. And he basically says, it's kind of like this. If you have seed, if you had no plants and all you had was seed. And you looked at now right now, if I get seed and I, I know it's lettuce seed, I have an idea in my mind what it's going to be. But if you could go back and say there where there was. There's no plants. You've never seen a plant. All you see is a seed and you say, now, what's that going to look like? And you have this little tiny brown seed. I would think, well, it's just going to be grow bigger. You don't have an idea of what the colors and the kind of plant it's going to be. And so he says, it's, it's like that. It's kind of like that, that when you change, it's going to be the difference between a seed in the ground and this Marvelous plant. You would never think an acorn could turn into an oak tree. But it does. And he says that's the difference. So the difference between what we are right now and what we will be is vastly different. It's marvelously different. So the scripture tells us enough to know that it's beyond explanation. But the finality of sin and death will be accomplished. Here's the good stuff. This is what God tells us in his word. You're not going to struggle with sin anymore. I don't know how that happens, but you're not going to struggle with sin anymore. And death will be defeated. Death will die. Can you believe that? Death will die. It will be no more. There will be a glorification of us. We will be like him. The Bible describes this as a new heaven and a new earth. What in the world does that mean? A new heaven and a new earth. But that's what it's going to be like. This is God's promise. You are God's child right now and you're struggling with sin right now. And guess what? Just hang in there because God has made a promise to you. One day he's going to take care of it all in the twinkling of an eye. And that's all going to be past. And you'll just have the future with him. Whatever that will be like. When I think about living forever and ever and ever and ever, 
I, my mind just goes all over the place. And I think, would you ever get bored? Not with God. What, what will he do that will change, that will, that will just keep our attention forever? I don't know. It's beyond our, our, our imagination. And then he talks about the labor, how we change right now. Because when we look at that, when we look at in the future, we see what we're going to be and what we want to be. But right now, I have some problems. He says here, and everyone, let's read it, verse 3 together. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. In my NIV, some of your translations will say, and everyone there, and, and the word is there, and, and it's connecting us back to uh, verse 2. And it's important that we're connected to verse 2, because if we read this in isolation, this is a wonderful passage for me to pound you with, just to get on to you. Someone who, who wants to take a passage and say, this says you need to pur- purify yourself, and you're not doing it, and can just jump all over you with this. But you need to connect it back to verse 1 and 2, where he says, remember who you are, what you will one day be. You are God's child now, and one day you're going to be something so glorious that if you were to see your glorified self right now, you would fall down and worship it. It's just it's going to be that marvelous. It's so different. If we don't grasp the wonderful reality of who we are. What God has declared us to be, what we will be one day, then what we do in this life is going to be a chore. It's going to be a task. It's going to be a hard duty of the things that we have to do. But if we begin to grasp who we are in Christ, then what we do will be a joy. We'll begin to see meaning in this and we'll begin to do these things because it's a joy, not because it's a task. So John gets here into a little nitty gritty. We get our hands dirty here. The Bible is really practical. The Bible never leaves us isolated up in the ivory towers or in monasteries. This is written for the mechanic who has grease under his fingernails. This is for the teacher with piles of paper to grade. This is for moms with babies underfoot. Dad's trying to figure out how to pay their bills this month. This is real life living. This isn't for the most spiritual. This is for every Christian. We contemplate who we are. We're flown to the heights, but we're not left there. We live in a real world and God expects us to be like real people. When a non-Christian looks at you, they ought to see a real person, not a fake person. He said there's a labor, there's a work that we do. And John describes it this way. You purify yourself. Now, before we go there, because it's so easy for us to just stop there and look at that, purify ourselves. Notice how John uses his words, how he sandwiches here. He bookends both sides, a God focused statement instead of me focused. It's almost if John says, now, when I'm talking about purifying yourself, You can get so focused on purifying yourself that you forget God. And we can. So what he says here instead, he says, I want you to look back here. This hope is in him. This hope is in him on one side. And so you purify himself as he is pure. And guess where the emphasis in the language is? The red letters there. This hope is in him. And so you purify yourself as he is pure. Who do you think God wants you to be focusing on here? 
him, not you. And yes, you focus on what you're doing. But as you do that, you keep remembering this hope is in him. And it's him that I'm looking at as I purify myself, not looking so much at just me. He purifies himself. Notice that he doesn't say that he should purify himself, but that he does. The Christian does purify themselves. And this word purify is the same word as holy. When you look at the word holy in the Bible, this, this is the same, same word. It was used of ceremonial washings of both people and things to prepare for worship for, for God in the Old Testament. And so John here, I believe, is speaking of a deep cleaning here. In chapter 1, verse 7, in the NIV, it says, it uses this word, it uses a word purify. In verse 9 also, we discussed that several months ago. But he says, we purif- uh, God purifies us. It's a totally different word. It's the word we get our word catharsis from. And, it, and what I think he's saying there is, as each individual sin comes up, God purifies it. God purifies it. God purifies it. This is a different purification. So listen carefully. I'm going to try and explain. Uh, explain. It's deeper. It's, it's not the cleansing of each individual sin, but it's cleansing of the whole person. And it's based in our hope of him, in him. This eager expectation that he's going to be com- coming back. And so because I know he's coming back, I fix my eyes on him in expectation. And I look at his purity. And based on his purity, I then purify myself. It's trying to explain it this way. It's more of a positive action instead of a negative thing. It's not this. Sin comes along and and tempts us. And we say, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, Another sin comes. No, I'm not going to do that. This is not this kind of purification. Do Do you live your life that way? Every sin that comes along, no, no, no. How does that how does that work for you? Really, how does that work for you? When you when a sin comes and you say no, and you're I'm not saying you say yes, but when a sin comes and you say set my mind to say no, set my mind to say no, it works for a little while. Right. And then what happens? And then you say yes. Right. All right. Then you focus and you do it again. All right. What this word is saying is we live our lives in eager anticipation of his coming. We focus on him. We grow in his likeness. And so when sin comes and tempts us, it's not that we say no to sin, but we say yes to Jesus. Because that's where our focus is. When sin came, when sin, when Jesus was tempted, where was his focus? It wasn't saying no to sin. It was saying yes to God. He quoted scriptures. That's where his mind was. And so because his mind was on God, in him, focused on him, when sin came, he said no. Because he was saying yes to God. It's not so much don't sin, but do be like Jesus. If I'm living a life in him, out of him, through him, then I'm purifying myself. You'll be taught of God what to do, what not to do. If you're living a life that's Jesus-centered and purifying yourself. Let me read you two passages that kind of, and I won't make too much comment on this. But Paul said the same thing in Philippians where he said, Therefore, my dear friends, as you, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, 
but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. With awe, with realizing the importance of what you're doing. And then as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, what does he say? For it is God who works in you. Isn't that interesting? It's God who's working in you to will and act according to his purpose. You're just allowing him to do the work. Yes, as you work out your salvation, God's working in you. Over in uh, 2 Corinthians, this is almost a parallel passage to what we're looking at. Since we have these promises, and you can look in in that text for those promises, but this is what he says. We have promises from God. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. It's an amazing passage, especially when you read that in the context. Our actions show to what extent we have grasped that we're in Christ. The more I understand who I am in Christ, the more my actions will reflect his glory. And that's why I emphasize so much who we are. Some of you have grown up in churches or been to places where the preacher emphasizes what we do. And then when we don't do it. He re-emphasizes what we do or don't do. And then when that doesn't work, he'll berate you, holler at you some, throw a bit of guilt in there, condemn you, twist some arms. I know that's true because some of you have told me about that. That's the life you grew up. And there was no joy in that. There's no joy in that. There's joy in knowing who you are. I'm God's child and growing in that. And that causes your actions to change. That's what the New Testament does over and over again. The things they tell us we must do and must not do is always based on who Christ is and what he's made you to be. Just know, just read the Bible, read the New Testament over and over. This is what Paul does in his writing. This is what all the letters do. They say over and over, this is who you are, so this is what you do. This is who you are. And we like to get to what we do. That's fine. We need to be there. But, but base it on who you are. When you know who you are, you will do what you need to do. You know, I think humanly we lack the confidence that God's method is better than ours. Do we really believe that if we hold up Jesus, he'll draw people to him? Oh, we quote the passage, but do we really believe that? If we emphasize his work, the cross, his love will compel us. It might take a little longer because that's growth. It takes time to grow in that knowledge. That if we see that God has adopted us into his family, we'll have the motivation to live like our father. Do we really believe that? You know, it's really a choice of living by fear. Or living by faith. Living by the rules. Or living in a relationship. Living by law. Or living in God's love. Julie shared with me a passage from a book she's reading that I've read in the past. And it's so, it's so much described how I feel about these lessons. 
So I'll read it to you from Elizabeth Googe's book, The Rosemary Tree. John, he's a preacher, looked down on his sermon in despair. He was no preacher. I didn't hear her name in good. He was no preacher. The very glory of what he wanted to say seemed to get in the way of his saying it. Try as, as he might, he could not write down what he knew. He was like a man trying to catch the moonlight on the water with a fishing net. When he pulled the net into his boat, there was nothing in it except two repulsive fish, jellyfish and a bit of seaweed. Well, that's your jellyfish and seaweed for the day. It's the best I could do. When I look at this passage and I think and I see what God has said, you're his you're you're my child. You're loved. I'm going to change you one day into something you can't imagine. And so while you're waiting, focus on him. Purify yourself as you wait in, in hope and eager expectation. You begin to purify yourself, change to be more like him. Let me read my paraphrase three verses together. Click. Think about this. The incredible out of this world kind of love that the father lavished on us when he called us his children. And that is actually what we are. Now, because we are his children, the world can't understand us. Why, it never understood him either. You are all loved of God. Right here and now, we are, we are all children of God. It is not completely clear that what we will one day be like. Yet what we do know is that when he returns and is fully manifested, we will see him crystal clear just as he is. And then we will be just like him. And every one of us who looks forward to this future truth, anchoring our expectations fully in him, will daily clean up our lives, making sure that what needs to be removed is put off and what needs to be added to the character is put on. Our eyes are fixed on God, who is completely pure, and he is our desire. If we can help you in a public way, our elders are going to come up here to receive you. If you're outside of Christ, I promise.